I invite you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If I can get this back in my pocket, we will be good to go here. There we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We are in our third week now in a series that we've entitled, Commissioned Out by 2 Corinthians. And in this, we're going through, we're journeying through the book of 2 Corinthians and We are seeing where the Lord, by His grace, He has taken His Word and He is in it, uh, pushed us out or commissioned us out. He has called us, He has given us tasks, jobs. He has called us out to a particular work that He desires us to do and that He will provide the power for. First week we looked at that He calls us to be God's comforters. We are called to be God's comforters, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He calls us out to go and be instruments of comfort. So when we go out, God uses us to comfort those who we are with. Last week we saw that we are also called to be a fragrance of Christ. As we go and as we speak, as we proclaim, as we live, the Lord is leaving a fragrance of life with those who love Him. As we proclaim the truth and as we show His love. And people receive that either by seeing life or by, seeing, uh, by rejecting that and receiving death. But we want to be a fragrance of life in this community. We want when people, uh, when they think of Alberta Baptist Church, they think of life, and they think of hope, and they think of freedom in Jesus. This week we move into chapter 3. And we're going to see that God is calling us to be proclaimers of His glory. Proclaimers of God's glory. To get you called up to... The setting here in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, I'll give you just a little bit of information. We find out that Paul, who wrote this letter, by the way, 2 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, by the power of God's Spirit. He wrote this letter, and it was sent to the church in Corinth, a body of believers in Christ, who Paul had spent a year and a half with. A very crucial year and a half of his life with them and in the life of that church. Where for many of the people who would be in this church body, they believed the gospel under the leadership and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so if if you have believed the gospel, if you have come to faith, you know that is a very monumental moment in your life. Where the people around you during that time are very special to your heart and it means a lot. The people who invest in you deeply are people you treasure. Paul was one of the ones that deeply poured into this church body. Not only did they love him, but Paul loved them very much. In chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 4, he talks about how he wrote to them. And he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Like This is how Paul felt about these people that he wrote to. He loved them very much. He spent a year and a half of his life with them. If you're curious of how I know that, 
Acts 18 gives us this information. <clears throat> after Paul left, after he went on in his missionary journey to plant more churches, some people came in. I don't know their names, but we understand them to be false teachers. They came in, they began to tell the church in Corinth that they were to uh, forget about Christ and His grace, to forget about what they had heard in the gospel of Jesus that Paul proclaimed and taught them so diligently, but instead to go back to believing that it was their works that would lead them to life. It was the Mosaic law or the law that was given to Moses that would lead them to life, to be obedient to the law, and that's where you'll find your salvation. They begin to question the legitimacy of the very ministry of Paul, to question his heart. Evidently, they began to tell them that maybe they didn't know who Paul really was. Maybe he was just selfish. Maybe he was just after uh, money. Maybe he was just after selfish gain. They began to spread lies and rumors about Paul. And in chapter 3, he's going to pick up and he responds to these lies. And he'll continue to do so throughout this book. But he also calls them to, to forget about this deal with considering about his sufficiency or to quit looking at whether or not he was legitimate and instead look to the Lord and to what he's called them to. So look with me at the first three verses and then we'll, we'll move on from there. This is God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? The word commend could be like introduce. He's saying, is it, is it really necessary for me to introduce myself to you again as if you don't know me? You know, I don't know what these false prophets are telling you about me, but do I really need to reintroduce myself to you? He says, or do we need, and he's referring to him and, and those who were with him on the missionary journey. He said, do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? See, in this time, when you would travel from church to church or place to place, it would be custom for you to come with a letter from the church where you came from. Just almost as a, a resume or, or, or saying, this guy is legitimate, he's the real deal. It was a way of introducing someone to a body of people. And Paul says, I don't need that. Like, do I really need to give you a letter from someone else? I spent a year and a half of my life with you. You saw God work through me and in you. Look, uh, continue on. He said, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What Paul says is, he says, let me tell you about our letter of recommendation. It's you. You, church, it's the work of God in you, the powerful work of the Spirit in your hearts, transforming you to make you more into who Christ desires you to be in Him. It's that transforming work 
that grace and that love, the way that you love God and the way that you love one another, it's the work of the very Spirit of God in you that is our testimony of our legitimacy. You want to know that we're legit to be a teacher? To be a proclaimer of the gospel, look at the fruit in your own life from the gospel that we preached. That's what he's saying. He says the greatest testimony that we have for the city of Corinth is the people of God going out loving God and loving each other. It's the work of the Spirit in you, and you know this. He then goes on to say in verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But listen, church. He says, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What we see here, if you'll take out your outline found in your worship guide, we'll see the the first Uh, place of emphasis today from God's word is this is we need to see that our sufficiency this is for salvation uh, in general but specifically here uh, our sufficiency for ministry comes not from ourselves but it comes from God so when we look at this text here in 2 Corinthians and when we journey through this book, anytime we talk about what God has called us to or, or what He's called us to do outside of this building, what He's doing within us, what, what He desires from us individually or corporately, whatever we look at, we need to understand the sufficiency comes not from the work that we do, but it comes from the work of God in us. Does that make sense? Paul says all this talk about whether or not You know, I am legitimate. You need to understand, let's not talk about me. I've done nothing within myself to make my ministry legitimate. It's the work of God in me. I love what he says in, you don't have to flip there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18, he's still defending his ministry in chapter 10. And he says in verse 18, he says, For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul's saying our sufficiency, my sufficiency, my ministry that I have, it's not something that I made up or created. It was from God and it's powered by the very Spirit of my God. Moving on, we want to see secondly that our understanding of the gospel, this is so important, that our understanding of the gospel and the gospel ministry that we have been given will shape the way that we view everything about our life and our mission. Our life and our ministry. The way that you view the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, will affect the way that you see all of life. This is very important because... If you'll see in your outline there, a misunderstood gospel will always lead to a misdirected mission. If you want to be a little, uh, if you want to make it a little easier, say this a distorted gospel will always lead to a distorted life for God. You'll miss it. And the ministry that we do as a church will miss it. In fact, we'll lead people astray if we misunderstand the gospel. 
A misunderstood gospel will always lead to a misdirected application of truth. Like you will not be able to grow if you do not understand the gospel. The good news of Jesus. Who he is. Why he matters so much. You know, what is it that he's done for us? What he is currently doing in us. If we don't get that, then we'll miss everything. Paul goes back here for the rest of this chapter and moving into chapter 4, and he's going to begin to lead the church to remember or to recognize the significance of the work of Jesus in their life and ministry. Because it is that that they proclaim. It is that that they will take to the world. See, people had crept in and they began to say, hey, it's not about Jesus, it's about you obeying the law. It's not about His grace, it's about your work. It's about obedience. If you obey, you'll live. And Paul takes the rest of the time here to explain the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. About the Old Testament and the promises therein and the New Testament and the promises that are given and fulfilled in Christ. That's what we have to take to the world. And so what we see here at the very end of the verses that we have read so far, is he said, we have been made sufficient for a particular ministry, and it says, ministers of a new covenant. A new covenant. That the work of the new covenant is identified by the very power of God's Spirit working in and through His people. So, looking at your outline, we want to ask a question, and the question is this, what does it mean to be ministers of a new covenant? And, and to do this, this is very tricky if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus and you're not familiar with really the Old Testament as a whole, this can be tricky and therefore I've spent a lot of time this week in prayer and preparation asking God to make this very clear to you. What we want to do is take time to first begin by contrasting the Old and the New Covenants. And we're going to consider the words and the phrases that are used here in the text uh, to contrast. Examples are going to be, he says, the letter versus the Spirit. The ministry of death and condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness. It's like his way of saying... We want to look at the shadow, and then we want to take hold of the real thing. We want to remember the shadow, and as Jonathan Edwards says, take hold of the substance. Read with me there in verse 7 through verse 11. Paul says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 
I want to remind you this morning of the Old Covenant. To be reminded of what he's referring to and, and really the scene that most paints the picture of the Old Covenant is found in the book of Exodus chapter 19. In the book of Exodus chapter 19, God is speaking audibly to the people of Israel. A people that he took out of Egypt and he led them into freedom to worship him as their God. And he brought them to Mount Sinai and he, speaking to Moses but audibly for the people to hear, he gives them what we know as the Ten Commandments. He reads them and then he speaks over the people to obey and live. And the people say, with their voices, they say, All that you say, we will do. All that you give us, we will obey. Guys, it wasn't but 20 minutes, and they were breaking the rules. It wasn't but a few moments, and they were breaking the rules. I will remind you that as Paul, uh, as Paul, as Moses goes onto the mountain to not just receive audible words, but have the words etched in stone, the Ten Commandments that is, the people of God were creating a golden calf to worship. I want to read you from the Jesus Storybook Bible, the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones, as she talks about this promise of the Old Covenant, that if we would obey God's rules, we would live. If we would obey His law, we would live. She talks about that He gave the law and that the people answered. They said, we can do it. Yes, we promise. She said, but they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all of the time. God knew that they couldn't. And He wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all of the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and to be perfect for them. Because the rules couldn't save them, only God could. I'll give you a very quick breakdown of how we can view the Levitical law or the Mosaic covenant as we read it. If you'll write this down, it will help you. You're going to get to Exodus and Leviticus here pretty soon in your Bible reading times. And I want you to, to look and read the text through the lenses of these words. The laws that God has given us and the way that He directed His people there in Israel to worship and walk with Him, to know Him, to love Him. Because uh, that's what He was doing. The Old Covenant was really defining God's relationship to His people. This is how you can know me. This is how you can walk with me. This is how I can dwell with you. And this was through a, a priesthood. This was through a sacrificial system of animals that would die in place of the sin that was committed by man. This was a dwelling place that God would meet His people in, in a temple, in the tabernacle. This is how God would meet with His people. And as we do that, I want you to see what God is teaching us. He's teaching us, one, through the Old Covenant, that He is holy. God is holy. 
we see that. You can't miss it there in Exodus. If you go back and read Exodus 19, 20, you read through the rest of that book, you understand God's holy. He's very separate from us. He's set apart. The people were frightened to be near him. In fact, when Moses met with him, as we see here in our text, that the glory of God was so bright that Moses' face would radiate with brightness. So much so that he had to cover up his face to be able to speak with the people. But when he would go back into the presence of God, he would unveil it. God is holy. But the, the law also teaches us not only that God is holy, set apart, but that sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. Sin costs. Worship costs. God taught His people and teaches us through the Levitical law and, and through the Old Covenant that to worship God, to have a relationship with God, our sins have to be dealt with. So many animals died. Much blood was spilled. God is holy. Sin is deadly. Death is necessary. The people of God in the Old Covenant, they understood death has to come because of the sin of man. Our sin cost. To worship God cost. God is holy, sin is deadly, death is necessary, and it leads us and points us to this truth that only Jesus Christ is worthy. Only Jesus is worthy. See, in the Old Covenant, we were pointed to God's law that He gave by His grace. That if we would live by them, we would have blessing. That if we would live by them, that we would be alive with God. He would be our God, we would be His people. But the problem was, is that the law very clearly pointed out that the people were such sinners, they could not walk according to His law the way they were commanded to. See, like all covenants we find here that uh, what God makes with His people, the, the covenant here is unconditional in the sense that God's sovereign and He's good and His purposes for that covenant would be fulfilled. But the old covenant was conditional in the sense that Israel would only receive blessing through living, obedient faith. The covenant here was particular, it focused on a people, Israel, but yet it's universal because it would be through this people that blessing would come to the whole world, including us in this room today, in Christ Jesus. People understood very quickly that the old covenant was not enough. And they looked outside, they looked for a promise, they looked to the promise of God when one day something would come, someone would come, that would be their Savior. Look with me at the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 gives us the promise of the new covenant. God's people, uh, burdened with their sin, burdened with their inability to be free, they received this promise. God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Ezekiel 36, flip over a couple of books. Ezekiel chapter 36, the same promise that we saw earlier, came from the book of Ezekiel chapter 36 there in verse 24. The Lord says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. That's what we need. He says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In this sense, flesh is good, okay? I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give, that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is not only for the people of Israel. The New Testament makes it very clear that this salvation through this covenant was for all who will believe in Christ. This is for us. A covenant where God states, this is how I will relate to people. It is by them believing on my Son. By me placing my very power, my very life within them. The book of Hebrews really helps us to understand the importance and fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. The book of Hebrews could be summed up where the Lord is just teaching us that that Jesus is better. He's better. He's He's better than the prophet Moses. He has better a better covenant that he mediates. That He's the prophet that we needed. He's the priest that we need. He's the sacrifice that's greater than the animals. He is the king that's greater than David. He is the one that has the power to once and for all take away the sins of those who will believe. The new covenant is just the name for which we, by the power and the grace of God, We love Him and we love one another. It defines our relationship with Him. So I want you now to revisit 2 Corinthians and see that that what Paul's doing is, is he is contrasting these two covenants. He says the old covenant, he refers to it as the ministry of death. Like, that's not good. The ministry of death. This is the ministry that highlighted and it pointed you to your inability to live. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, he says, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses. He said if they couldn't gaze at Moses with the ministry of death, if they couldn't look at him because of the glory that came with the ministry of condemnation, can you imagine the glory that comes in the ministry of righteousness where Jesus died in our place and rose for our life? 
Can you imagine how great it will be when the blinder comes off and the chains fall off and we're able to live because one has lived for us in our place? He said this is a far better covenant. He says it's so great, it so far surpasses it. He says that the one that once had glory has no glory at all. It has no glory at all. That Jesus so fulfilled the law, He so fulfilled the promise, that there's no need for us to try to live in our own power by this law. There's no need for us to even think about, if we do this, He'll love us. If we do this, He'll walk with us. Because He promises that He'll be with us by the work of His Son. He says, for if what being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. I think about Paul here. Paul was one of the best that we've ever known in obeying God's law. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous. He was really good at obeying God's law. But yet in Romans chapter 7, he talks about the law and he talks about the danger of trying to make the law your God. And he says that, I found out what I thought would be life for me proved to be my very death. He talked about even the relationship to the law in terms of his walk with Jesus. And he said, the very things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I didn't want to do, those are the things that I find myself doing. And all that I'm left with is the feeling of wretchedness. I feel, uh, I, I feel gross. I feel shameful. I feel guilty. He said, but praise be to God that He has given Christ Jesus to us. Romans 8.1, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest verses that we could ever consider in terms of the law is there in Romans 8. It was read earlier. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see that? See, God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that we, we might, Fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in Jesus. You see? If we're not careful, we'll do what we've seen God's people do throughout history. We saw evidently it was happening here in some sense in the church at Corinth. We know it happened in the church in Galatia. But where people who were saved by the grace and the power of Jesus decided that it would be best to grow by the law. That that doesn't work. So we don't leave the gospel of Jesus. We don't leave the good news of Jesus after we come to Him. We go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel, and that's what will prove to be our very life and growth. The way that you come to know Christ is the way that you grow in Christ. If we misunderstand the gospel right here, we will be tempted to proclaim a gospel that is not the gospel at all. I'll give you a couple of examples as we move towards a closing. See, if we proclaim a law outside of God's Spirit and power, outside of God's grace, we will teach people that Christianity is a religion that relies 
on external regulations. People will believe that the only way God will love them is if they live a particular way for Him. In fact, I'll say it this way. Not only will they rely on external regulations, but their Christianity will revolve around their performance to God. I've seen this happen many times. I've seen this in my own life. I've certainly seen it in the life of people at the church where they they see not God's grace and His love and His acceptance of them, but what they do is they see in their own power to try to live out God's law. And when they break it and when they feel the condemnation over them, you know what they do? They stop coming to church. They stop gathering with God's people because of the shame and the guilt. When When they're living a life that they believe is in line with God's law, then we see them here. When sexual immorality hasn't been as bad this week, then they come to church. They gather with God's people. But the second that they break, they feel that there's no way to come into the presence of God. In fact, they view the very building that we're in as the presence of God. That's a Christianity that relies on external regulations and revolves around our performance for God. And that will result in condemnation and death. That's us trying to proclaim or live out a new covenant with old covenant regulations. That doesn't work. But we have a fulfilled law, one that Jesus Christ has fulfilled for us, and we have the very power of God to live out His commands now. This Christianity, true Christianity, relies on internal transformation. On what God is doing in us, the fruit that He's producing in our lives, the ability we have now to love God and love one another. This Christianity revolves around God's performance in us and for us. We do not celebrate and praise our work for God. We celebrate God's work for us. This Christianity, true Christianity, results in salvation and life. I want you to see the rest of these verses. Look with me at at verse 12. Paul says, Since we have such hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that Israel might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, There's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, of God's word, I mean by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but it's Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We now see here, and we need to move from considering the Old and the New Covenant, the contrast, to now consider what being ministers of a new covenant involves. What does it mean to be a proclaimer of God's glory? How do we do this ministry? What does it entail? What do I need to do to prepare myself for this ministry that God's called us to and now our pastors are leading us to be a part of? How do we become proclaimers of God's glory? What would it look like? The first thing is this, is that we are to behold... And become. We are to behold and become. Behold is a beautiful word that just means look and see. We are to see Christ and become like Him. So, a point I want you to write down is this is that you will become what it is or who it is that you are beholding. You will become what it is or who it is that you are beholding. Whatever your God is, that is what you will become. If our goal is Christ, if our prize is Christ, then we will become like Him. For us to do this, we must look at Him, we must see Him, we must open up His Word, and we must read about Him and understand the greater truths about Jesus. The more that we understand what He's done for us, the more that we understand what He's doing in us, the more we'll love Him, the more we'll recognize, the more that the veil that's covering us partially, it will be removed. The more that the light exposes what's dark in us, we'll remove death and resurrect life, and we'll be His. We'll want Him, we'll desire Him. For us to understand how to become ministers of a new covenant, what that means, what that looks like, is for us to behold and become. And secondly, it's that we are to behold and proclaim. I think about all the times that we talk about the neighborhood and the campus and the world, and we talk about being ministers of reconciliation, being uh, taking the gospel to the world. We need to ask the question, how is it and what is it that we plan to bring them? What is it that we plan to do? And as we do that, I might lead us to not complicate the calling here with fleshly solutions. We don't need to try to win over the neighborhood with our craftiness. We don't need to try to win over the campus for glory of Christ with our our craftiness or what we might can bring to the table. What they need most is to see Jesus. They need to behold the Son and be transformed from one glory to the next. If we want Jesus to receive glory and we want Jesus to be believed in and Jesus to bring about life before our eyes, it will be because we show and we proclaim and we live Christ in this world. 
We point people to Jesus and we proclaim Jesus. We show them Christ and His finished work. And we watch Him rescue people from their sins. We must understand our place in the battle for glory. When we think about beholding and proclaiming, we must understand that Satan is at work. Satan is blinding the eyes of unbelievers. It's possible that some of you in this room today, you have blinders on. You can't see. You don't understand the good news of Christ. And the way that those blinders come off is not external you know, rule for you to follow rules and get better. That won't change you. That will not transform your heart. That will not remove the veil from your eyes. In fact, that's the very work of Satan in this church. What we need to do is this, is have the blinders removed, the veil removed as we proclaim and we see the very glory of Christ, how great He is and what He's done in Christ Jesus. We must understand that God is revealing Himself through His people and Satan is trying to blind the people as we reveal. Church, we must see that our primary calling in this ministry is to proclaim the very glory of God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. As you stand and as Jennifer as they come, I, I want you to see this. I'll, I'll put this in the only terms I, I really know how to do it. It's not eloquent, but this is the way that God led me this week. Is our role, church, our goal here, our way of moving out into the neighborhood, our way of response is this, is to recognize that our calling is to yank off the veils as we proclaim the glory. Yank the veils and proclaim the glory. We pull the veils off in the very power of God and we, as we reveal the very beauty and worth of the work of Christ. So church, stand with me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we ask that you would do a work. Lord, we, we need to see Christ. We need to see His finished work on our behalf. We need to see Him as the prize. God, may we see Him, be transformed by Him, and take Him to the world. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.